Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Shelf Impactors. Uh, in this recording, Lisa and I discuss the subject area of mindfulness, or more to the point, mindfulness 2.0. A subject we covered about three years ago on our podcast, but chose to revisit and discuss how things have changed. Not only our own attitudes, but the global understanding of the subject of mindfulness and meditation. And moreover, has the COVID pandemic altered people's mindsets on the whole issue of mindfulness? Good morning. Good evening, Lise. How are you doing? I'm doing super well, thank you, Mark. How are you? Oh, very well indeed. So, uh, Lise, how have you been? What have you been up to the last couple of weeks? I've been really good. Um, thanks, Mark. I can't believe it's February already and all of this planning stage. We've done a little bit of it now, so we've actually got some sort of structure and a system to doing these podcasts on a more regular basis. Um, but yeah, all is good. Um, work is picking up. It's been very busy. We're working with a couple of great challenger brands of ours. Um, so I've been involved in strategy workshops today with one of them, which is an extreme sporting brand. Um, yeah, we're picking up. We're really busy. It's sunny, not sunny, sunny, not sunny. I've been a little bit here, there and everywhere, um, tripping around wise. But otherwise, all is good. How about you? It's still winter, but you're scratching towards springtime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. things are good at this end. Um, home life is good. We've got sort of our renovation work around the house is getting getting mainly started now. We've got some projects happening outside, sort of an office and gym being built out into a, from a, an old shed. Um, quite a large shed, but it's, it's just a nice, I'm looking forward to having a space outside of the house. Um, yeah, still trying to get around and work, the work from home set up, trying to get used to that. Um, I don't think I've mastered it yet, the, the best way, the most efficient way of working. A lot of the stuff I do is obviously as a contracting at the moment and a freelancer, most of my work is working from home. So I'm not necessarily going into office spaces and my clients at the moment are in the States. Um, which is great because I'm working on some lovely projects. I, you know my background, Lee. I cut my teeth in design working for at Molson Coors to help setting up their in-house studio crack in the late 90s, early 2000s. <clears throat> oh, yeah, there's my age. But um, I'm working again at the moment with Molson Coors over in the States um, through a, a, an agency and working on some really cool projects. And it's lovely to be back into what is probably my comfort zone of drinks brands. But it would be super interesting to see where it's gone to now mm. in terms of like how different it'd be good to look at your work then and your work now and even the kind of brands that you're working on. The categories have changed. I mean, just I, I won't bore you with the details because I know the subject matter today is completely different. But the categories, <laughs> you know, you're working hard seltzers, hard seltzers didn't exist. RTDs, so RTDs, ready to drink uh, beverages. So things like Hooch, which is coming to the market. We had launched Hooch back in the late 90s. Um, now those have moved on into all sorts of different sort of iterations, if you like. Um, hard seltzers is, is a big, big area right now, which is growing. Craft, craft beers being gone, coming back again, you know. And we covered quite a bit of it in the last episode with Alex and the trends as well. So a lot of that talked about seltzers and seltzers with immune boosting benefits. Maybe there's going to be one that touches on our topic today in the future. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting space. It'd be a great one to work back in. Oh, totally. And in fact, it's <laughs> talking about beverages. And I know that it's a conversation that's been happening within a lot of um, drinks company is companies is beverages infused with CBD, which 
um, based on today's subject, you know, those are the sort of things we know. And any nootropic type drinks, um, I, f- I find them fascinating. I'm definitely keen to try them anyway, um, just to see sort of <laughs> what impact it has. <laughs> is, that, is that how... Is that how you've asked to be paid, Mark? Yeah, pay, pay me, <laughs> pay me uh, a... CBD drinks. Absolutely. The stronger, the better. Um, no, so uh, that life is all good. Uh, really well. And uh, work is busy, a bit like you, really. Um, and uh, when I say busy, it is uh, constant. A lot of the work I'm doing with the States at the moment is sort of rolling on. So uh, it's great. And we've got some projects I'm working on in the UK for um, a brewery, which is... I think I mentioned it last in our last podcast uh, for you and I. Uh, that's going to be rolling out soon, so I can share that soon on my on my website. It's really interesting. To, I'm loving working with the US and the UK studios and having that mixture of different kind of ideas to bounce from. Like I'm loving that dynamic of, I mean, the time zone sometimes stuck and you're on calls at like midnight because we're in Australia. But sometimes it's just worth it, isn't it, just to find out different aspects around the world and how we can fuse that together. You must be enjoying it. I think working with this, and you've done it in the past a lot too, uh, and uh, as have I, working in this, with the States in, in a, the U, with the US market, living in the UK, and you can't help but compare and see the differences. And they have heritage brands, national brands, they compare and work with that we don't necessarily align to. But you've, as a designer, you've got to be able to put your, sh- your feet into the shoes of the consumer. Within the US, you've got the heritage brands, such as a, an example is Hershey bars. In the UK, we've got Cadbury's. And you've got to be able to align what the consumers are thinking and then sort of basically align your consumer journeys. Um, and it's likewise the same with Australia, being a, if you're UK-based. Oh, now, I, I enjoy working uh, with um, foreign markets too, but it's really nice to work within your own market because you're something you know. <laughs> you know what you'd buy. <laughs> That's your comfort. So should we get on to the meat of the podcast? I think we should because we've, we've been here before. And it feels like we're coming yes. <laughs> and we're back to the same to the we same are. debate that we had just a few years ago. Go on, tell everyone what it is. <laughs> okay, so this is mindfulness 2.0. So as Lise suggested, we um, we did a podcast at, over three years ago now and it's in episode nine. So feel free to go and listen back to it. I'd probably prefer it's you didn't because it sounds so bad. It's awful. I, w- w- I, I know for myself, I am droning on. Uh, some of the, the content is good. So we cover things. We're going to talk about mindfulness today. And the content we were discussing in our last podcast three years ago hasn't really changed. I think what's happened is people's perception of what mindfulness is has developed a little bit further forward. So we touched on subjects like sleep, nutrition, daily routines, reading and mentors. And I guess what we're going to talk today is about have our own attitudes changed uh, and to a certain extent what we think mindfulness is now compared to what we probably thought it was previously. Is that about right, Lise? Sounds good, Mark. I'm, I'm ready to hear your arguments on it this time around. <laughs> well, it's not, there's no arguments to be had. There's no arguments to be had. I think, I mean, we could drill down in bullet points, really, but I think previously we were discussing what mindfulness actually is. Do you want to give a definition? And I think it doesn't really differ from my last one, if I'm entirely honest, from my perspective. What, if someone says to you, what's mindfulness? What would you say? I would say it's stillness or being present in the moment, which sounds really floaty. And, and it's one of the things that we will discuss, the fact that it is the act of meditation. But as soon as you say the word meditation, you picture notoriously people in floaty costumes in Byron Bay or whatever. 
And that's not really what it is. This stereotype is not what it is. But I think, you know, leaps and bounds from where we were three years ago. I think if I said to you, Mark, do you ever meditate? You'd have just laughed in my face. And now at least you're laughing in my face. But um, you will accept that it's a thing. <laughs> well, I will. And I'm also accepting of the fact that there are multi-billion pound businesses that are flourishing in these markets and categories because the world is certainly, certainly in, in our nations at least, um, I can't speak for any other sort of third world developing countries. They may not necessarily be in the same sort of scope as we are, but certainly brands like Headspace and Calm, um, you know, these are multi-billion pound uh, organisations who make their money and profit from people who are in need of these sort of services and improve their own sort of mental state. And I think that's a good point. Like what was once just this kind of buzzword, uh, mindfulness meditation is now a billion dollar business. And I think, and I think, you know, people like Headspace, like Calm, actually the pandemic's accelerated all of these things and it's no longer a taboo to talk about mental health. So it's all linked to mental health at the end of the day. The purpose of mindfulness and meditation is to help you cope with your, to help your mental health, to help you cope with change, to kind of absorb the thoughts and be in the present. And I think it's, it's how society has moved forward in accepting mental health. Mm. Going back to the definition of mindfulness, uh, and I, I picked up on some of the stuff that we spoke about previously. And mindfulness, I think I even stated back then, was about making yourself fully conscious of what's happening around you. Uh, and I made a comparison. Essentially, mindfulness is about not being mindless. So that's slipping into autopilot. About 50% of our time is spent in autopilot mode. Um, which is you know phenomenal really just to suggest that we are literally just in this sort of state of flow within our day do you think your definition and, and the way in which you approach your own personal mindfulness has changed in the last few years so I think look probably only because we only discussed it three years ago I was already just starting to tiptoe into I was already a lot more aware at the time of mindfulness but I think things Life experiences drove me there. So burnout drove me to find headspace. Insomnia drove me to find headspace. So we're problem solvers. So creative people generally, I think, would be more open to mindfulness and meditation because we're problem solvers. So when we know we can't sleep or we know we need to exercise more or all of these things, we seek out a solution. So I found mindfulness. I found headspace because I was going through a rough time. I was overworking. I was overthinking, like we're naturally prone to overthinking. And Headspace was just one of the apps that worked for me. Like it wasn't also one of those, it stepped away from what your preconceived ideas of mindfulness were. It wasn't, you know, float away with the ocean. It was actually, it put you in a Headspace <laughs> off at first. Like I used it to fall asleep. I never heard the end of one. So for me, Headspace was just a really small, beautifully branded as well. So look, we are, you know, even though we work in branding, I was also suckered in by the branding that made me, it, it cured my insomnia. Like a stupid little, a, what wouldn't, you know, you go, it's just an app. It cured my insomnia at the time. And I know to go back to that or to seek out those kind of ways. And then you just find your own way into it. Like it, it doesn't, I think, let's talk a bit more about different ways of mindfulness. Like I know you don't, in the traditional sense, meditate, but you have your own ways to step out of the box and be in the moment uh yeah there are different ways in which i would approach it um i'm and i think i've spoken about this numerous times in the past about being focused on efficiencies and trying to make sure i can make the most of my day 
and I even touched on it before about nutrition being part of mindfulness and I used to do a lot of food prep I must admit I don't do as much food prep as I used to because I was quite um anal about <laughs> making sure that every morsel of food that went into my mouth was counted for and managed in some way and now I'm a lot more relaxed I feel like you passed that baton to me at one point yeah. during our career. <laughs> well, it's highly addictive and I, I understand and it's, it does help. I guess in terms of mindfulness, it allows you to, if you know that's been locked away or squared away in terms of what your nutrition is, you can focus on other things. It's almost reducing those stress levels. And I think that's what it's all about, really, just in knowing what it is that helps you reduce those stress levels. And in my case, it was literally sort of, squaring away my meals and making sure right that's all done it don't even think about that and it could be even making sure your f- clothes are prepared for the next day little things like that just help you sort of t- t- ensure that your next day is going to be um at least stressful as possible and in terms of how my attitudes changed since you know since we last spoke they haven't i probably relaxed a little bit more and they've had to really because life's changed lives change you know environments change um having a young child um and you know moving house and all the rest of it you have to just adjust and even work you have to adjust around that too and then into another really interesting podcast I, listened, podcast I listened to the other day was um by a chap called steve bartlett who was interviewing johan hari johan hari is a, a famous journalist who wrote um his a book lost connections a few years back which i which was all about depression and anxiety and how he believed that antidepressants were weren't the what the true fix to depression and anxiety and it's all about sort of support networks around you i mean there's stronger arguments for and against what, what he was suggesting but anyway the his new book is all about flow states and i just touched on it before and it's fascinating i'm just about to start listening to it i've just read some of the preamble and the forwards on it um but his book's called stolen focus and it talks about funny you you were mentioning about how people are finding it more difficult to focus on their tasks at hand now because they have so many distractions tech being one of them so people being stuck into the phones and within those phones you've got the apps the tiktoks the whatsapps the instagrams you know there are lots of these things that people whilst they're being used at all to try and fix some of the mental problems that people might be having such as this mindfulness arena we're talking about you could also argue that it's also the cause of it, the cause of the problems. So, um, but he talks about the flow state and the flow state being is you are, when you're into something, you're in a flow. So he used examples of rock climber. A rock climbers climb a big mountain. Within you know a few minutes of starting their climb, they get into a flow and any form of interruption within that can stop them in their tracks and they can lose where they're at. And he's saying that sometimes, on average, I don't know what study he's referring to, but he does talk about the fact that if you're interrupted when you're in a flow state, it can take on average 20 minutes to get back into that the former flow that you were in. If you imagine that throughout a day, if you've got interactions and your phone's buzzing or whatever it might be happening, it's just a, it was a really nice approach and I think and thought process into what's interrupting and what the reason why we're so much more aware of the need to improve our mindfulness. So I'd recommend reading that one. And I think it's also a a skill that we've lost over time. So I've also read recently a book by a guy called Nir Eyal, who talks about being indistractable. Um, So, you know, the art of distraction, we're distracted by so many things, but actually being indistractable teaches you techniques and tips and tricks to focus 
because those moments of focus actually help rather than trying to do everything or trying to, like you say, the multitasking, the checking your phone, the um, always having your emails on. Like It's really easy to fall into that trap. And I know because I do it. <laughs> um, I'll openly admit, like I'm also someone who is easily distracted and, and I'm off in different directions. So I think even just practicing mindfulness or meditation or whatever your form of it is and focusing only on that thing. And I do a few, like I've got loads of different meditation apps, Deepak Chopra, um, Jay Shetty, just different people that I listen to that force you to focus on that moment for that pocket of time. And, and it's quite a difficult skill to learn. Um, Tom Billiard does a good um, podcast about it on impact theory, about how it does work with your brain chemistry. And I think you, you raised a really interesting point. So the uh, medication for um, depression and things like that, ultimately is a sticking presser. It's something that's going to change your brain chemistry. So if you're able to balance that chemistry yourself, that's a pretty amazing skill. I know you and I watch a lot of Joe Rogan and all of these different, like David Goggins things about overcoming these things. So what it does is it teaches you to be in control rather than external influences to be in control. This whole subject around it is a fascinating and it's, um, so I don't want to waffle on about them too much, but Johan Hari talks about um, and it's a generation thing, and his his discussion stems on to how um, the younger generation now it's part of their life. Their life is in a constant interruption, a flow interruption. That so at no point are they able to focus for things on on, on, on on any long period of time. What's the impact going to be on uh, the younger generations who cannot focus on things? And he says the impact's going to have uh, massive consequences on innovation for example if these people can't innovate you need to be able to concentrate in order to innovate <clears throat> it's it was fascinating and this is just an overview of the book so i'm really looking forward to getting into that um but i know personally and from a personal perspective i came off instagram came off facebook years ago i don't touch those i look at twitter once in a while but i try and avoid them as best i can i try and control what my interruptions are my phone is on do not disturb um probably 24 hours a day much to my partner Lorraine's <laughs> disgust because she can't contact me because I've got on to that stage. it could be end of the garden she can't contact me or I know what works for me and I try and mitigate any form of interruption I know is going to be coming in by almost <laughs> allowing it to come in when I want it almost when I'm able to do it and I don't know if you're the same Lise can you switch off from it Oh, look, I am very conscious that I, I can switch off from it, but I am very conscious that I get sucked into a trap when I'm around too many people who do it. Um, and it's been a discussion recently, actually, within a work capacity or whatever, about I'm, I am terrible, like I'm easily distracted. So I have to, you can buy boxes that you put your phone in for the day. So I think it's also about not, not letting you feel like you're leaving other people dangling. So there's also a bit of a, there is a selfishness to mindfulness and meditation to go, I'm taking this time for me to focus on this. So there's also a little bit of a side that I get drawn into that goes, oh, I need to reply to this message. I don't want to let them down. But actually you're better if you go, no, this is the pocket of time I reply to messages. This is the pocket of time that I focus on this because to your point, like the focus is needed. And um, so actually when I do, it's funny when you need mindfulness and you need to meditate the most is normally when you do it the least. But it, it does teach you to, to have that focus. Just if I can pause for a second there, I just want to get an understanding because I, I have to admit when we when we make the statement mindfulness and meditation, are they two different things? Do you achieve mindfulness if you meditate or is it vice versa? Are they one of the same thing? I, I think meditation is a form of mindfulness. 
So I think mindfulness can come in the form of um, being in any pocket of a moment. So mindfulness to me is whether you something like I go for a run and that takes me away from everything else. There's no distractions. I'm in it. And it's kind of an escapism. So mindfulness is kind of escapism, whether you're in nature, whether you're taking time to focus on one thing. So mindfulness is a focus and bringing your attention to that one thing that you're doing. Whereas meditation is a form of mindfulness. So I do think for me, meditation is about seeing and sitting in the quiet and being with your thoughts. Is that your definition of meditation then? Sat within your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think necessarily, it doesn't matter where you're sat, but I do, I do think it's allowing whatever you feel, sense, think, come up and, and almost letting it go. And if, you, if you're a headspace user, you'll know that because it teaches you to almost, a thought is a cloud and you, you feel it, you experience it, and then you let it move forward. You almost move through it. And you have to move through those uncomfortable moments. If you're sitting there, you don't think you can sit on the floor. You don't have to sit cross-legged, but it helps you put, you know, <laughs> just to make you feel a little bit voodoo. But, um, but you know, if you kind of sit, I can't sit there quiet. for. It's really hard to sit there quietly for 30 minutes and not go, I'm just going to check my phone or any little thing. You're, you're so easily distracted. But if you force yourself to work through it, it's it's really good. So I go floating. So one of my the time I meditate often is when I go to a float tank session. So which is which is which is a pool of small swimming pool of water. Not, you sat in a room smoking, and literally floating. It's not. No, it's if only it was that. It's not ayahuasca or anything like that. It's um. It's no. It's laying in a pool of crystal. So literally, you're laying floating on a bed of water. And and you can't really fall asleep. But you have to lay there for an hour. You can have music if you want, but you have to just lay there for an hour. And the first time you do it, it's really difficult to do it. And your mind's all over the place. You want to splash around in the water. Some people hate it. I love it. That's the time that I go, I'm just going to see what my bra- what ticks through my brain. And it's amazing what it does. But some people hate it. I know some people that hate it. So you've got to find your thing. Just prior to getting prepped on our discussion today, I was trying to look for a definition of what sorry what meditation was and i think headspace's definition if you go to the headspace um website i don't use it but i've had a look on the website and it um i'll quote it verbatim here meditation is about becoming a different person a new person or even a better person it's training yourself in awareness and getting a healthy sense of perspective which although it's a little bit fluffy I can see what it's saying, uh, and it's, it's more to your point, is it about sort of getting your head into the right space and working through moments which you know are potentially a little bit uncomfortable, but if you think about them enough, you can, you'll can you be able to get around them with a solution. And I think the one thing that I have moved on from, so before I would have listened to stuff like Deepak Chopra, but just recently I've been listening to quite a lot of, there's a, um, an influencer called Mel Robbins, she talks a lot and she, she writes some books about, and I've just done one called The High Five Habit is a great book of hers, but she does the five second rule. So I wouldn't say it's meditation, but it's mindfulness and that it's bringing your attention to a small series of actual physical habits to move you forward. So it has the same effect of meditation, but what she talks about a lot is a lot of people talk to you about what you should do 
And this forces you to act on it. So in the five second rule, it's like if you've got something that you either want to achieve or you want to do, you have to five, four, three, two, one and move. And the act of moving is what sparks the mental chemistry that moves you forward. So maybe there is a thing where at the end of your meditation, 10 minutes or however long you do it for, you have to five, four, three, two, one, now move. And that the intention you set in the 10 minutes of stillness, the movement is what sparks the action. So she talks more to you, you've got to move. You can't just think all the time. You've actually got to have action at the end of that stillness. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I've, I was just thinking then as you're discussing that about um, best practices for those people who, for the high achievers, let's say, um, and they have their daily routines. And some of those obviously include meditation. Some will include writing uh, journals, um, writing their uh, logs of gratitude, little things like this. And it's, I guess it's finding what works for you. And any one of those could become a form of meditation. Writing a journal, for example, which I've done in the past, not very well, if I'm honest, and not very consistently. But it does help. And it's very nice to sort of dis almost in your own mind, drill down how you break down your day, what happened, um, what were the problems and how you might be able to, how you overcame them. Um, no, it's, it's just, it's just an interesting way of approach to your own form of meditation. Liz, you discussed the pillars of mindfulness. There are things that when you step into it and there'll be people listening to this that are probably already aficionados in doing it. So I think it's about realizing that it's not an easy thing to do. Um, so some of the pillars I've got about that it's non-judging. Non it's about even if you feel uncomfortable doing it, even if sometimes you sit there and things that are in your head, you go, why am I thinking about this? It's kind of a bit like you can't control your dreams. You sometimes can't control what comes up in your mind either. But it's like there's no there's no perfect answer. And the patience thing is something that I personally struggle with. So one of the pillars of mindfulness is patience. I am not a patient person. Mindfulness has taught me to be a lot more patient. Um, because I'm a do it now person I've got that kind of personality that that get get shit done kind of thinking so patience is a pillar of mindfulness apparently um, and it perhaps teaches you to be a bit more patient the more you do it because it's not quick the beginner's mindset is that every time you do it it's going to be different um, and I've also got the the, the trust that it's going to work and that's a massive thing about it if ever you start doing any form of meditation or, or again, you find out what works for you. I, I don't think everyone needs to necessarily meditate, but I just think give it time and give it a go and trust that it does. It like it's it's the one thing that I always need is I do need the science that backs it up. And science proves that meditation and mindfulness works to your point, Mark, about your book that you're reading. The flow states if there wasn't then at the end of that some sci science proof that says this makes your brain live longer, healthier, stronger, and conquer the world. If there wasn't some positive psychology in it, we wouldn't even be talking about this today. But you and I are both people that go like, I need, I need the why. So I'll do it, but I need the why. So be it a Simon Sinek thing, but you need the, we talk about it a lot of work. Our boss always talks about, yeah, but why? And then you'll ask another question, you'll go, but why? But why? And, and that's the curiosity side of us that goes, I need the science that proves this is worth doing because it sucks. Yeah. I mean, at some point it has to stop, though, isn't it? The question you had to stop and the application has to start. And you've got to, OK, I've got to work through it now and make a start somewhere. But it's interesting. So on that point, at some point, the thoughts have to stop and the stillness kicks in. Yeah. So Chris Doe has put a great post today on um, LinkedIn that talks about stillness is not nothingness. And when you get to the stillness, that's when the best ideas happen. 
you and I do both know that actually in our brainstorming sessions, it's better when you do get rid of the distractions. And and I think of mindfulness or meditation a bit like that. It's the moments when you run out of things to think about the best ideas happen. Yeah, it's true. It's blocking out all the interference. And it's easy to turn around and kind of Google it or, or all of those things or just grab other things, grab other solutions rather than just sitting there and going, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. If you don't know the answer, just sit with it because it, it will. It does happen. Like there's been a few challenges, business challenges lately. And, and you know, you kind of I know now because I've been doing it long enough where I need to go for the answers. So, you know, I messaged you before I talk tonight to go, I'm at Balmoral. I'm getting ready for our talk, which is to anyone who is listening. It's a beautiful beach. It's 20 minutes drive from where I live. And sometimes, you know, just for me, just being in nature and being away from people, people are suckers of your energy um, is to, to just just find your moment actually feeling your feet on the stand or you know if you're not lucky enough to live near a beach even just putting your feet on the ground barefoot on grass in the middle of winter when it's minus four but there's still something quite liberating about it so find what works for you and then whenever you need an answer go there yeah and it'll change that that place will change on a regular basis you you might get to a place where you dare I say it, you get bored of going to Balmoral and you want an alternative and the alternative might be to go into the Blue Mountains or um, go to a different beach, whatever it might be. But you've got to be aware of that as well. So it doesn't even have to be in nature. You can even, you can meditate sitting on a train because you can, you just put your mind somewhere else. I meditate sometimes at the squat rack. <laughs> it's just me lifting heavy weights. That's my meditation. <laughs> I look, yeah, oh, mine, is a, tra- mine is a treadmill, so sometimes you actually just need to escape in the treadmill. But, um, no, but it's still, like, it, it kind of all crosses over, doesn't it? So I think you need to find your place to go. The sleep one is interesting. I know we spoke about that quite a lot in the last episode all of those years ago that sounded terrible because we weren't very good at this, and, and we're still learning now. But talk a little bit to me about the sleep aspect, Mark, because I know you're a big champion person of the sleep. We talked about Sean Stevens and all of those studies. Oh, massively, massively. And it was a book that Matthew Walker wrote about sleep, which I know since since I read it a few years back now, um, it's become widely accoladed and it's, 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 a, it's a big read and a good read for many people. And I'd suggest people who haven't read it to read it. But it does, it maps out <clears throat> the best way to get your sleep opportunity or windows of opportunity to sleep, I think is the, the phrase. Um, and allowing you the best possible sleep that you can get by making sure that window of opportunity is as big as possible. People talk about the eight, nine hour window of sleep. It's your sleep opportunity. You might have eight hours in bed, but you may not be sleeping and resting for the full eight hours. Making sure that window of opportunity is bigger, so whatever sleep you get within that window is best. In terms of me and how my sleep um, my approach to sleep has changed. I do, at the moment, I try and get as much sleep as I can. It's difficult when you have so much happening in your life and you're having to work around ch- obstacles, let's say. I, I will try and switch off from all sort of tech and everything else by probably 9, 8, even 8 p.m., but 9 p.m. at least, and maybe a little bit of television after that. But then post 10 o'clock, I'm entirely switched off from it all. And I do. I don't do it at the moment. I often listen to audiobooks now, but reading books I find a really good way of being able to switch off and allow me to sort of get into that sleep mode. But no, I'm I'm a big advocate of sleep. I, I'm not a master at it, and I'm still learning. And I, I think we all are. We all change, you know. Our own genetic makeup changes as we get older, anyway. So our approach to sleep is slightly different. Sometimes we need more sleep as we get older. 
But um, what about you, Lise? How your approach to sleep? No, I think like sleep is sleep has always been something that I've struggled with. Um, just the act of going to bed is the thing that I struggle with. So when I'm in bed, I actually fall asleep. I actually go, the day is finished. You've done enough. You don't need to do any more. Go to bed. But I've been practicing lately. Again, it's a habit forming process. I think once you get into the habit of it, I am still yet to believe that getting up at 5 a.m. is good for anyone. I don't believe that's the truth. But I am trying to go to bed before midnight because I do think there's some science that proves that going to bed before midnight. And if you listen to Tom Billiow and his recent podcast that talks about living longer and, and you know, kind of resetting your age every year, yes, which we would yes. all love to do. Of course we would. Um, but he talks a lot about sleeping at the crux of that and um, just allowing your mind. So he listens to, I think he listens to almost white noise. So again, we all have our things like sometimes I put my AirPods in and I listen to a Tibetan sound bowl because the sounds and the gonging and everything just for some reason, it just sends me to sleep. Um, so I think, again, you find your own ways and what you need to listen to. But it's it's an ongoing battle, the sleep one for me. That's why I always love to hear other people's tips and tricks and techniques, because it's something that I personally struggle with. And so I love to hear how other people concrete to go, maybe I can try yeah. that. I mean, one thing I've been doing a lot recently, and I won't labour the point again, is um, I have a little bit of a, a herbal tea, like a green a peppermint tea. It sounds so old. God, I sound like I'm 80. I'm not 80. <laughs> but it... A little like peppermint tea at about <laughs> half past nine really settles the, settles the soul, and then I can sort of toddle enough to bed at ten, and they're all good. So I've got a bigger question actually, and it's something I've written in my notes here, and I'd be fascinated to get, sort of hear your thoughts on it because I've got a few thoughts on it too. Is how the pandemic has changed people's approach to mindfulness? Because I know that with the beginning of the coronavirus back in 2019. Um, with the impact of p- people having to, um, you know, all the lockdowns, everything else, people's mental health has really been challenged. Uh, and a lot of people have been coming out and sort of saying this, they're really suffering because of it. Do you think this has had been impact on, number one, our own approach to mindfulness, as in the gen pop? Uh, and also, is there a generational thing? Because I do think that there are, that our younger generations now are in need of support in terms of their mental welfare, mental well-being. What do you think? So mindfulness is actually built into the curriculum now, over here definitely anyway. So I think I'll come at this with two prongs. So I think the pandemic has made it okay to talk about mental health, which I think is a great thing because I think it's needed to be talked about for a long time. We've talked about it before. It's also accelerated the need to talk about loneliness and being by yourself. It's also forced people to spend time with their own thoughts because we've all been isolated and in our own pockets. And then I can talk about it from a brand point of view and say it also opens up this massive opportunity for all of these brands to create these apps and these different experiences that you can buy into to help you sort out your mental space. So I think it's accelerated it in really, I think it's positive. I think any change is positive. So I think it's made us talk about difficult things. We also add, to put it bluntly, shitloads of time to meditate. Yes. Just like, true, I might, I might do true. that now because I can go out for an hour and then I've just got to sit at home. So what the hell am I going to do? The only way you could travel. Don't forget, sometimes, sometimes those people actually having that time to themselves is sometimes a negative because they, they think being in their own company it makes them dwell in their own thoughts and sometimes those th- thoughts aren't great thoughts. Just, you know, they haven't necessarily worked out the best way in which to work. Um, I guess be on their own. I I agree, and I, and and 
I think, but once you find out the right tools, I think you have to work through the thoughts of the fear and the scared. But that's when you can also move yourself to a space to go, they are just thoughts. And actually, the only time that you'll be able to move beyond those thoughts is when you're sat at home by yourself. We couldn't travel for two years. We couldn't go anywhere. So our mind was the only way we could take ourselves to new places. And I know we could escape in TV and virtual reality and things like that. And I think that's where it saw a bit of a divide because people who, who need, there are people who need constant stimulation and they need to have all of those things. And then there are people that actually embrace mindfulness. So I think it saw two prongs. And there are so many brands that popped up during that time to facilitate both of those needs. What about you, Mark? What do you think about the pandemic and how it's accelerated mindfulness? It's accelerated people's awareness of mindfulness, I think. Um, and there are tech companies who are obviously um, capitalising on the fact that people are more, more aware of it and are looking for help. But I think I am personally um, would try and avoid tech as a reliant, reliant source of trying to fix or um, help out with the element of mindfulness. Um, I'm a bit like you were suggesting there. I'm all about getting outside and doing something which is something that you enjoy, placing yourself into those happy spaces. Not say outside, you can be inside painting, you know, landscapes, whatever. But you need to know what your, what your space is. Um, I think my biggest concern, if you like, post-pandemic is, and having a 13-year-old child, is trying to fathom how this is going to impact on them later on in life. Um, we as adults have are emotionally mature enough to try, I think, most of us are, to try and understand, okay, this is going to be a short-lived thing, It will we will get over it, and the normal, new normal will continue. For children who no, don't know any better and they don't have any past experiences, this is the generation, I think, who are going to suffer. And we're not going to see the impact of that, I don't think, for a few years yet. But at the moment, I, I've seen the impact it has on him and his, some of his friends and the way and their behaviour patterns... Um, their approach to schooling. Um, I mean, they, never get, they had months and months and months where they weren't actually at school um, and doing online activities. We never did anything online as children. No. Trying There's to a learn human and educate online. Oh, the kids are switching I off think, from it. I think you lose the human connection element and, and the emotional connection element because you're, you are in just kind of that little bubble. And there were good things that it did bring up in terms of there was a lot of nostalgic things that came up. People were painting, drawing, doing jigsaw puzzles and doing things that got. So it was kind of there was an element of anti-tech. Yeah, it was really good because it true. brought back some of the people sat down and played board games if they were in families and stuff. But I do think it'll be interesting to see how we we get back into and especially now we're building the metaverse where everything is online as well. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see whether there's a divide as to people who only ever exist in an online world and whether how that, because like you and I are both, like we're hoggers. So if you meet someone new, now never. people who've never, if you've been like trapped and grown up where that's not normal to do that because you've been taught to sanitize your hands and stay two meters from everyone, how does that manifest itself in the future? How does it play out? I know, that's a emotional... really, really, really interesting point. And the, even facial masks, face masks, facial masks, face masks for with a toddler two-year-old for him to try and look at people's faces and understand and read people's feelings and emotions which we all do just through facial expressions when that's covered up for a two-year-old trying to looking at adults think well the only adults i really see without face mask are my parents um that he's that's the only interaction that he has visually with adults you know showing their faces 
albeit it's, that's going now, and certainly within the UK, um, face masks are no longer mandatory. It's a suggestion that we should be using them. We don't have to, so it's not by law. I don't. Are you the same in Australia now? At least, Do you, is it face masks? No, we we have to wear them everywhere, and we even have to wear them at work still at the moment. So we, uh, so we've got we've gone backwards. We were so far forwards, and now we've gone backwards. The Omicron is quite um, quite prevalent over here at the moment. So my my team are all working from home again. <laughs> the, that's the other benefit. I have seen the benefit to the pandemic in terms of mindfulness is people have been able to spend more time with their family working from home and at home, and in turn, it's allowed businesses to become a little bit more slick in their approach to the way in which they work with their teams, how you interact with your team, for example, the use of tech in that respect and how that's moved forward. People's systems stuck in an office and just assuming, oh, we'll have a meeting in an hour or so, you know full well if it's in your calendar you're at home, you will attend that meeting because it's, it's, everything is so much more regimented and easier to manage. You do, but it's, elevate, it's elevated the need to multitask because people will have a meeting on they might be doing stuff in the background while the while stuff's on. So there's that multitasking. And ultimately, people expect you to always be on. Our business is good. It doesn't necessarily. But people expect you to always be on. So where do you actually do the mindfulness? Whereas, you know, it, I, and again, the thing with mindfulness is you have to force yourself to take the time to do it. In whatever it is you do, whether you run, whether it's about meal prepping, whether it's about doing the nutrition thing properly, whether it's about going for a walk in nature, you're the one that's responsible. You have to block that time to focus in whatever way you focus. And everyone has their own hurdles they've got to overcome throughout the day, whether they've got young families or highly sort of stressful work-related things they've got to sort of overcome on a daily basis. Crikey, Lise, that is a meaty subject, mindfulness. Um, is there anything else you want to add to the discussion? I don't think so, but maybe we should just name drop like five or six. You named the book people that if you want to get into mindfulness or meditation and you've not, maybe let's just name drop a few things to get people excited and get people going. If they're not going to listen to our podcast, maybe there's other things. I didn't prep this. I didn't prep this one. (laughs) You've you've mentioned your book. I'll mention another book by a guy called Sean Stevens who talks a lot about sleep. So if you're also keen for the sleep one, who is the guy you mentioned on the sleep one, Mark? Um, well, that's Matthew Walker. Um, his his book, Sleep, is you'll be able to find it in audio and paperback. Both are brilliant. I have both, um, and they're fascinating. And the other author I was talking about was a guy called Johan Hari. Um, his latest book, Stolen Focus, all about flow states, and his previous book called Lost Connections, about um, his story behind his own um, fixing, personal way in which he fixes to his... Um, anxiety and depression um, but yeah those are my recommendations if you get a chance um, and I would follow that by saying Nia Eyal who talks about indistractable about focusing which is kind of a form a little bit of um, mindfulness to an extent stillness not mindfulness whatever you want to call it to not be too um, Mel Robbins talks about active mindfulness Jay Shetty is also someone who does quite a lot of podcasts he does YouTubes and things um and like I also listen to things called Infinite Potential. There's podcast mindfulness. There's just so many out there. Some of them are very floaty. There's quite a lot that if you get two minutes in, even like I switch so many off. But I found, again, you find your people, you find your tribe, the ones you like to listen to. There's quite a lot out there. Just figure out what you want to know in your own pathway into it. Would be- Everyone to a certain extent has some form of um, or needs some form of mental well-being in their lives. 
it's just meant it's me- it's mental support isn't it and it's mental stability um and it's to observe the thoughts and look the science backs it up positive psychology backs it up i bet elon musk meditates now you're there now you're gonna oh, do it i gotta go meditate Go now. i know <laughs> I know, dearing me. Well, listen, Lise, thank you ever so much. This has been brilliant yet again. So this, this is, and we, we should have mentioned at the beginning, this is, the, this is our series three now, isn't it? So we're going to start rolling out these on a more regular basis. And we've got a lot of guests lined up. So we're, we're getting some really exciting people involved in this one. We're going to have consistency. We're going to, we've got a plan this time, which is, uh, which is a good start. <laughs> there's always a plan. We're not always aware of it. Lise, this has been brilliant. Thank you ever so much. Let's catch up soon. Thanks, Mark.